Good morning. This is day 97. So I have three more days to get to 100. I don't know what happens then. Um, maybe I'll just um, be on fire and people could come and watch me burn, like Wesley said. Of course, that should be all of us. Um, anyway, tomorrow I'm going to have um, Marty Derricott from the North Georgia Revival on um, interviewing him during this time. So. Hopefully you can join us then. Um, they just went to DC and they did a baptism revival like in <laughs> in the mall there in David's tent in the in DC. So a lot of powerful things happened. I think it's very symbolic that they actually were there. That this whole movement, you know, with the North Georgia revival has actually like become part of like, you know, our landscape in a way that it um, it happened in D.C. I think that's just really key, um, symbolically and otherwise. But anyway, I was um, kind of reflecting on, you know, like three more days talking about revival, which I might probably just continue. I'm not sure yet. But I was reading this passage this, passage this morning. Um, Jesus says, I come, this is the New Living Version. I've come to set the world on fire. And I wish it were already boring, uh, burning. <laughs> Good morning, Jimmy. I said boring instead of burning. And I wish it were already burning. Good morning, um, Sarah. Awesome. I have a terrible baptism suffering ahead of me, and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart three in favor of me and two against or two in favor and three against father will be divided against son son against father mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law <laughs> right <laughs> and um, then Jesus turned to the crowd and said when you see the clouds beginning to form in the west you say here comes a shower and you're right when the south wind blows, you say today will be a scorcher, and it is. You fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs on the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. <clears throat> Good morning, Paul. How are you? I wanted to read this quote by Jeff Gaw in his book, um, Revival Fires, real quick. I think, well, before I do that, let me just say this about this. I think one of the biggest indictments against our particularly Western Christianity, because we've been reading The Heavenly Man by Brother Young in my Bible Lit class, and we're talking about a man in communist China who literally, like the book of Acts was his life. Um, Brother Young had so many incredible, incredible, incredible things. I mean, he was called when he was 16 years old to preach. Um, in a country where, you know, if you owned a Bible, you're like, you could be put to death. He didn't have a Bible. And for years, I mean, not years, but for a long season, he had been told by a pastor to pray and fast for a Bible. And so he would wail and cry and fast and pray for hours. And his parents thought he was absolutely crazy at first. And in fact, at one juncture, his father said, Lord, please give my son a Bible. And so he, you know, of course, you know, um, heavenly man's style in terms of his life, you know, everything happened in a vision. 
you know, so just like with, and with Paul, you know, he would be going to see someone because the Lord told him he was going to go to the south and the west to preach. And he would have a vision of who he was going to meet, who would be on the road, what their names were, everything. And then the other person on the other side would have a dream or a vision and the same thing. And they would meet and they already knew each other in the spirit before they ever met. And I think it's interesting that um, in places where like Christianity is illegal or heavily persecuted or in third world, they see so much more supernatural because they need it. In other words, um, Brother Young would have probably been killed like really early. Like he always got caught. He always got away. He literally had angels let him out of prison. Um, those are some of my, you know, funner memories of that story as I'm going through it. Funner. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, well, it's fascinating, right, to see Book of Acts in action in someone's life in um, China in a, you know, communist country where we're not, they're not allowed to do that. They have the state church, but it's basically a church that gets fed what they're supposed to say and do and that supports socialism. But essentially, there was one point where he was, and this is just a couple of small parts of that, he had had his legs broken in several places because he had been so badly beaten and they had done everything to him. The, um, the entity, the uh, police, et cetera, had like totally like brutalized this man. I mean, everything you could think of happening to someone in a, you know, in a prison happened to him. And he was sitting on the top bunk because the, the actual other inmates had to carry him around. And he was up on the top bunk with his legs all broken in a few places crying out to the Lord and the Lord says essentially I'll heal you just jump off the bed <laughs> and so he you know that kind of freaked him out but he did and his legs were instantly healed as he hit the floor everything about this man's life and he's you know he's still alive he's been to Bethel Reading to speak to the students out there um, he's going to be at the Jesus conference um, and you know in December and I mean, everything about what he did was supernatural. It looked like the book of Acts playing out, even to the point where angels came and let him out of prison. Um, so he'd experienced all of that. I think it's just phenomenal um, because his perspective on what it means to be sold out is so radically different than ours. We read a passage like this and we think, you know, where Jesus says, I've come to set the world on fire and I wish it was already burning. And he talks about father and households being divided. And, you know, we almost be like, well, no, please don't. Right. Like, we don't want to see that. I would submit to you that some of the tension that we have seen in our lives with family, etc., is about the gospel, not necessarily always overtly about it. But I think when you carry the kingdom and you really are someone who lives that life in a way that people know what you're about, you know, not religious, but just know that you, what you carry and who you are, there is an aversion to us in many places all around us. And it's not always, I think a lot of it's spiritual. But I also think that Jesus is also doing some things to reconcile these things at the same time. But I think what really got me when I was reading this this morning was, is that one of the biggest indictments about Western Christianity is we're way too comfortable. Because he talks about in here weighing the cost in the previous verse, and this is in Luke um, 12. He says, 
A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put, um, will put the servant in charge of all he owns. But if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and begins to beat the other servants, partying and getting drunk, the master will return unannounced to unexpected, and he will cut the servant into pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. A servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But one who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, here's the key to that, that passage, much will be required. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. I think that's um, one of the reasons I think our backstories have been so long and why, you know, there's so many aspects of this that we that God has been preparing us for. You know, I've said a lot, like in many of the trials, tribulations, the places where the perfect storm of the enemy came to take us out, one of the things that God was restoring in us is what Bill Johnson talks about is one of the biggest crises in Christendom, and that is the belief that God is good. So in all of the things that we've kind of walked through, the places of trial, the fiery trials, the places of decimation, in all of that, the thing that God was going after was he was getting Egypt out of us, and he was getting our orphanhood out of us, and he was reminding us and showing us that we, he was in fact good. When you look at a culture that has had has as fragmented and wounded as we are, and shame is their core, which means they feel defective, they've been broken in every kind of way, it is so easy to project what we think about that part of our life and what that has done to us in terms of destroying parts of us and project that onto God. So essentially, as a father figure, we project onto him that he was abandoning us. You know, I've talked before about, you know, that season in my wife and I's life where the enemy, you know, brought the perfect storm. And I was a pastor, I was in ministry, never thought that I could be so profoundly disillusioned. And the, the, the real hurt for me had more to do with the fact that I felt like God allowed what happened to happen as opposed to what was actually happened. I was so offended at that. And it wasn't until, you know, later down the road when God was beginning to, you know, always draw me, always pursuing me. And this Bible lit class was part of the setup for that. You know, when I first started teaching this over nine years ago, it was like, I knew that the Lord was gonna get back at my heart through the kids. And I knew what it meant. I knew it was a setup, you know, that had more implications than I ever could imagine. And it was part of my own kind of restoration of my own heart. And I remember um, at that time, I, there was a student that was always inviting me to go to church. Well, for 10 years, I didn't want to do church. I did the movies. My wife and I went to the movies and we could handle that kind of truth because it wasn't truth that was going to abuse or damage. It wasn't, I didn't have to go there and explain my life and worry about being judged. Because most believers thought that what happened in our life could never happen to anybody. They were not used to any kind of super fiery trial. They weren't used to mess. So mess messed them up. And in religious community, 
where we value law and we value all this order, like we, we're, we're trying to manage our life and we use the Bible as our self-help book to help us manage and look good. In that context, we don't do mess. And so our lives were extremely messy. We didn't want to share them with anybody. And I didn't like Christians at that time because I was like, every time I tell my story, they just look at me like, what's wrong with you? Which only compounds the shame. But part of the real restoration for me, you know, just talking about the goodness of God was the revelation. I remember um, this one student kept inviting me to church and I, I kept not going. And finally I said, you know, I don't want to make any promises because I don't want to make any more that I can't keep. And then one day, while the pressure was off, <laughs> I showed up. I found out later that he had waited on the steps for 30 minutes every Sunday, seeing if I would come. And I remember the day that the student who was passionate for Jesus, I mean passionate for Jesus, and I could tell you in nine years, I can count on two hands the number of people, kids who have come through that were believers, church believer kids that I knew were so on fire that wherever they went, they would change the culture. This kid was one of those. He would read his Bible on the back steps of one of our main buildings here. and didn't care what anybody thought. He didn't, had already, he had no reputation to maintain. In high school, that's a big deal. And I remember that day that, um, he, you know, he would keep inviting me. I remember the day that I told him that I had lost the idea, like I no longer believe, this is the state that I was in. I no longer believe that God actually loved me personally. My God at that season in my life was this God of Bette Midler. You know, he's watching in the distance, but he really didn't give a darn. And that's how disillusioned I'd become at that time. And so when I showed up that one day at church, um, shocked him. And essentially, there was a song on the screen. I think it was a Chris Tomlin song. It could have been somebody singing the ABCs. It didn't matter because the Holy Spirit was there. And so essentially, I broke. And I had to come into the light in order for my own heart to be revealed. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful among all things. Who can know it? And that's a big issue when it comes to desires of our heart when it comes to the issues of the heart, you know, we don't always know what's in there and we need the light of the Holy Spirit to come in and actually illuminate us. And that's part of what I always talk about is having, I need to have an encounter sometimes to have an encounter. Because if you take a heart, if you took a heart that is like the stony, rocky soil and you blasted that with water, you would get a flood, but nothing would penetrate. And so, for those, when we're in that place, which is a lot of what revival is doing right now, because part of what has happened as a culture is our desperation level has gone way down. And when we get into this uh, cerebral Christianity, our heart becomes dry. And it's like that broken, dry ground in the parable that can't hold the seed because when it comes, the enemy snatches it. And it's like if you hit that ground with a water hose, you would blow it apart, but you would never saturate it. And so what Holy Spirit does in awakening is it's like he's got the, the mister on. You know, if you misted that soil and little by little, it would begin to absorb the soil, that, um, the water rather. That's what awakening looks like. It's like my heart is the soil, this rocky soil, this all dirt. 
and God is misting it. And he brings us degree by degree into a place of awakening because we don't really know how far our heart has been locked up and wrapped up and how disillusioned we are until the Holy Spirit actually touches it. It's like, we don't know that. We don't know how, you know, there's this part, and I love the way he says this in the message. I'm going all over the map today, but it's day 97 of 100. I can do that. Um, I'm having fun. In Mark 14, where he talks about the prayer, where Jesus goes out to, you know, pray, and he comes back and he finds his disciples asleep. The way it reads in the message is this. He said, be alert. He said, part of you is ready for anything in God. But another part of you is like a lazy dog in front of the fire. And I thought about that. And I was like, yes, because when think about this in the presence of Jesus, right? He goes away for what? 30 minutes, an hour, whatever to pray. And he comes back and they're, they're like done. We can't live outside of the presence very long before we become absolute, that hard, crumbled ground. And what he was saying to them, he says, part of you is ready for anything in God. But what he was saying about the lazy dog is, is when you live outside of my presence, when my presence, if you're not in a presence-oriented um, habitation, you quickly become complacent and your passion dies and you become lazy. And that's what happens in Western Christianity is there is a slumbering spirit literally that's been over us. And the enemy loves that because in slumber and religion, we're paralyzed. But what a revival does, I think it's interesting. I wanna distinguish the two words here. Jeff go revival and awakening. He says revival is God pouring out his spirit on all people. Revivals have been thoroughly described and analyzed. The Christian term revile, revival, not revile, <laughs> that's an interesting take, may be traced to its earliest use in the phrase revival of religion. Great. Here's what Oxford, um, the dictionary says. He says, this is actually J. Edwin Orr. He, he says, spiritual awakening is a movement of the Holy Spirit bringing about a revival of New Testament Christianity in the Church of Christ and its related community. The awakening of the masses and the movements um, of uninstructed people toward the Christian faith. The revived church by many or by few is moved to engage in evangelism and teaching social action. He says revival and awakening have been used interchangeably in the revival, revival literature. However, revival usually refers to local revivals of spiritual life and commitment through conversions and social transformation. Awakening usually refers to the more widespread influence of revivals across a large area for more extended period of time with considerable influence in the community and the nation. I love his definition. Um, because revival is what comes to the church. You know, when you look at what happened in Toronto and Brownsville, and you look at all of the revivals in the 17, 1800s, they were regional, okay? So something happens in the region, but the greater part of what happens when the, you have these regional fire hubs like you do in Dawsonville, Georgia, 
is what happens when people leave those environments and they find out that the revival, what they were in, was transferable, that there was an impartation. Many of them didn't even know what they received, so they went back to their own churches. There's so many stories about Toronto and Brownsville where literally the churches would pay the pastor to go on sabbatical, like you need to go. And they would come back, and I remember in this one story, he came back um, after being told that he had to go, he waved his arms and they all fell out. He had no clue what he was, what had happened to him there. And that's where some of the biggest influence begins to take place. And so this awakening is this thing when it begins to spread beyond the fire hub and it begins to transform culture and it begins to wake us up because you can't take a lawless culture and water them with a fire hose. Literally, they are being like misted and, and drenched slowly into being awakened. Their heart has to come alive to be responsive. In other words, sometimes I have to be awakened so that I can actually have the encounter. And that's what I feel like happens on the broader scale with awakening and what we see as revival continues, as it continues to spread, as fire hubs pop up all over the planet, you know, from that place, there'll be an influence in the culture. You know, in um, the revivals with, um, with Edwards and um, Whitfield and all of them, and, and the ones that happened in England, the Welsh revival, all of those, when it really took hold and when you really knew that it had become a true awakening was when it began to transform culture. Like people stopped leaving, they left the pubs, you know, they started doing um, everything about their life began to change. There was this new, there was a sense of moral conviction and awakening that was taking place inside of them. And that's really how a culture gets transformed. It's not a political movement, it's a movement of love that comes through awakening and revival. And so revival isn't necessarily just an option for us that's kind of cute. It's actually something that if we don't have it, nothing in our culture will change. There will be no people, there will be no captives set free. There will be, there, there's nothing that can change the face of the planet or our culture today, except an infusion of, of Holy Spirit fire. Like Jesus said, I have come to set the world on fire. That's why there has been so much preparation in our backstory, because we are supposed to be the ones like Wesley, who said, I set myself on fire to, and let the world come and watch me burn. We have to be that. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about in California, a buddy of mine, and he, you know, talking about why we have to be so saturated. Like we don't, it's not an option for us just to have light presence and a little visitation. This is why we have to be a continuous ongoing conduit of revival, that our culture is a revival, awakening culture, where we're a habitation of Holy Spirit. And when people come into where we are, wherever we are, gathered in a home, in a church, in a business, whatever it is, they experience presence. I was talking to a couple of students yesterday about just the pervasiveness of, um, they were talking about the pervasiveness of like basically what a pornified culture looks like. And 
they were essentially acknowledging that they needed the Holy Spirit. I remember one day asking my class, like, how many of you guys have actually had an encounter with heaven, our Jesus, our Holy Spirit? And three people raised their hands. And so, and most of them were looked like they didn't know what I was asking. So I had to clarify. So I said, okay, what about, think about a time in worship where you felt like the Holy Spirit came near. Or think about something on a summer retreat where you suddenly felt like when you went to the altar that God was like really, really close to you. You felt your heart beating, like you came alive. And that was when I got three hands. What that tells me is that most of what Christendom has looked like for us in our Western Christianity is it has been a cerebral ascent to um, what's true, but it has not been married to encounter in our heart. And so what I think, one of the things we were talking about yesterday was because of the intensity of the struggle, I said, you know, because I was just pondering this, you know, with some um, couple of students that were really kind of aware. I said, it's almost as if because we don't imagine, we cannot perceive what freedom looks like. We assume that it doesn't exist. So what happens in the church youth today is, and the reason they struggle as much as the world does, one, they haven't been brought into much encounter at all with Jesus. In fact, you can't just have one. Like these guys were actually telling me, we need to have, a, we need to be able to come into it every single day. And one kid gave an example about how over the summer, you know, he was struggling with so many things and he came into a place where somebody took him under his wing and brought him into habitation and church over the whole summer. And it was like everything just began to fall off as far as the struggle because he was soaking in the presence. Like he said in Mark 14, most, some part of you is ready for anything in God. In the presence of Jesus, I am always awakened and I am ready for anything in God. I am ready for action. When I'm in the presence, I am pulling down the mandate of heaven. I'm pulling down the agenda of heaven. I can't do that apart from the presence. There's just no way that we can live without the presence of Jesus. And we can't live in environments where that presence is mediated. Where, you know, come Holy Spirit needs to be our favorite words. Like, come now, you're here right now. Permeate the room. Just like, you know, knock us out, take us out. And so they were saying that essentially, back to the students, that um, they knew that when they came into presence, that that was the thing that broke it up. And when you look at what, what they're kind of dealing with, I said, I was trying to wrap my head around it, and I said, it's almost like they rewrite the rules. It's almost like, since I don't think I can get free from sexual addiction, and I don't think I could get free from this, I become a different kind of Christian, a Christian who does it all, but still believes in God. So they, what I can't reconcile or get free from, I just accept as part of my new norm. And they were like, that's it. It's like they draw a new circle, and because they don't know what freedom looks like, they just go ahead and hold and do what they do, and still try to maintain faith, which we know doesn't work. You can't do that. Like, And holiness can't be this outer thing that we're placing on people as an outer construct. It has to be the product of an inner work. It's that immersion in Holy Spirit that brings about something in my heart. If you look at every revival, 
there is one thing, and it was most pronounced in the Toronto revival. I remember, and, and with that revival, it was this awakening to love. It was like people would get glued to the floor for an hour, not be able to get up at all. People would be stuck, manifesting, doing all kinds of things. But what it did was that water that in that glued down to the floor. I remember Rodney Howard Brown saying it this way. A lot of people don't like his model, right? I love his model. He says, my job is to get them under the anointing and God does the rest. And he's right. When people were on the floor in Toronto under the anointing, God just began to like supercharge that misting of their heart. And the, the grace that comes in revival is that soil, what would normally take a year to soften through encounters throughout the year was happening all in a day. In a day, in our two days, it was like God was doing something in the heart that the heart could not have received, even in, even in normal Christendom, even in a spirit-filled church. Going there for a year, they wouldn't get as soaked as they were as they were laying on the floor. So the only thing that accelerates the soaking of the soil of my heart and awakening me into a place where I could take the word of faith and that seed and produce the bumper crop a hundredfold is the unmeasured grace that revival brings. That is the thing that changes the equation across the board. Because my what's normal Christian life for most of us in our churches, even in spiritual churches, isn't the thing that always brings the greatest amount of freedom. And so, because we're talking about Christians struggling with intense stuff, I'm not talking about believer, unbelievers. Christians are struggling with every kind of addiction under the sun and are captivate, captive by so many things. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what's not happening? And like I said to these guys yesterday, I said, when I see the Christian kids and the non-Christian kids struggling with the same intensity, except one group knows how to look good better than the other, it tells me two things. One, whatever they're struggling with is intense. It's so powerful that they can't, they're having a hard time resisting it. The other is that they're, they're living they have not had enough encounter in Holy Spirit to break it. They don't know what freedom looks like. And so what we do when we don't know what it looks like or we stay in a place for an extended time is we actually accept the addiction as part of my life. It's just part of the way I do life. And we just kind of hold on to that and we don't anticipate freedom. Jesus did not die so that the church could hold on to an addiction and not be free from it. Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't be absolutely free, completely on fire, always ready for something in, in God. That's what he died for. There is nothing in my Bible that says I can't be completely free. And so the only thing that changes that is the presence of Jesus that we are mediators and habitations of the presence. And we have to be in environments and we have to create the environment around us in the atmosphere where that is always what's happening. That we are always cultivating the presence. We are always coming into the presence. That we are bringing all everyone else into that place of encounter. 
It's the only thing that will change the course that our whole that the world is on in a lawless, love-grown, cold culture. The only thing that changes that is presence. And that's why revival with its amplified grace and its ability to saturate a dry, dried out heart, a heart that has become broken and broken um, dry ground. The only thing that can change that in a shorter amount of time, God can do in an hour what would take a year to do otherwise is in the context of glory and presence. In the context of glory, when you read about revival and people get under the anointing and they come into the glory of God, every weight comes off of them. Every weight, everything that they're burdened and weighted down with begins to come off of them. I go from glory to glory and we, I have to be in a place where we cultivate presence and we know and experience glory of God. In that context, present continuous revival, that's a context for freedom. And it breaks the power of the lie that I can't be free. And we don't leave a generation feeling like they got to rewrite the rules and accept their addictions and bondages as part of their norm because the Christianity that has been presented to them in, the, in law, in works, and religion has not been something that has enabled them to manage. We are not called to manage our life. We are called to surrender it, and we are called to live, move, have our being in the Holy Spirit. And we are called to be a habitation and to walk in freedom, freedom from sin, holy and righteous because of the transformation that happens in the habitation of the Lord. That's what they're missing. That's what they don't know. That's what so much of the generation doesn't know. Revival and the awakening that it brings will bring us into a place of knowing who God is, knowing that he's good and being turned on to love again as our hearts are expanded and as our hearts are saturated. We don't know how far we've gone in terms of our unsaturated life, in terms of the dryness of our own heart until it actually begins to get soaked. Then we realize how desperate we have become. Literally, we have to come into habitation to even be able to fully get a hold of how desperate we are. That's why revival, when you see people come into the water, it's desperation that drives them to the baptismal pool. And when they're coming out of it, they come out of it with a renewed love and passion that got beat out of them in the context of just doing life on planet Earth. Blessings, guys. Three more days to 100. Sorry to have gone on for, you know, such a long time. But at any rate, uh, see you tomorrow, same time, with Todd Smith. Not Todd Smith, Marty Derricott. Todd's going to come on, too. We're just going to fix the time for that. So tomorrow we'll be interviewing Marty. Hope you join us at 7.